This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you're willing to work like all three of us were today to trudge through the nettles and, you know, take the bad angles and, you know, have snag in your back cast and do all that kind of stuff, you will be rewarded. Welcome to the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Youngdike. I'm here at the Association of Great Lakes Outdoors Writers in La Crosse, Wisconsin, the annual conference, and I'm here with Scott McIntum. Did I pronounce that right? Mockintoon. Mockintoon. Close. Close. It's a tough one. <laughs> you know, I know how to spell it. I'm proud of that. Um, and I'm here with Buddy Siner. Uh, Buddy Siner, he uh, produces fish stories, which we'll learn about in a little bit. Uh, Scott's a freelance uh, outdoor writer, an avid fisherman, and a professional fisheries biologist or wildlife biologist? Fish biologist. You're Fish right. biologist. And we just got back from fishing the Driftless area, and I, I feel pretty pretty happy to be able to go out and fish with a fish biologist and a, and a producer of fish stories, which helped out because both these guys uh, both, both helped me catch some fish I probably wouldn't have caught on my own either. Um, we were fishing in the Driftless region of, of southeastern Minnesota, just across the Mississippi River from La Crosse, Wisconsin. Um, we got on some, uh, some brown trout. Um, I, know, uh, I know Scott was hoping to get into some brookies too. Um, but, but we were able to access uh, a little trout stream that went onto private property through a public access access program run by the Minnesota DNR, correct? Yeah, you know, one of the blessings uh, for for Minnesota, I don't have the exact number of stream miles, but really uh, better than half of the stream miles, we've got permanent uh, conservation easements. They're, they're fishing access easements. And the the, the purpose is to provide public access, so it's really unbelievable. I mean, Minnesota sort of renowned as having uh, a tremendous amount of public water access for our 11,842 lakes, over 10 acres in size. That's the minimum. Wisconsin likes to say they have more. They don't because they'll 
they'll uh, they'll base theirs off of any old puddle. Uh, we we, we <laughs> at least have a we at least have a standard. It's got to be ten acres. Uh, but we've got all these lakes and, and well, well. Before I let you get away with <laughs> with that, I do have to, to. I don't have the exact down to the number, but Michigan has eleven thousand actual lakes as well. <laughs> yeah. Fight, 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 fight. This, is, fight, this fight. has been this has been debunked with, in a New York Times article in Minnesota most lakes. So I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that. We'll let you fact check after that. So you got his name wrong, and then you went ahead and trumped Minnesota's Great Lakes. By saying, by the way, Michigan is way better than, than Minnesota on lakes. <laughs> Great way to start. But our, but our, it, it's really absolutely amazing. I mean, I try to tell folks to, you know, I, I get calls at, at the office, and like Drew said, I, I work in kind of south central Minnesota. We have a couple trout streams in the area that I work in that are tributaries to the Minnesota River, and they're put and take fisheries. In other words, we're stocking these streams. Anglers have a chance to go out and catch fish in them, but they're not viable through the entire year. It's very rare years that you can overwinter because of the hydrology changes. We don't, you know, the water gets too warm or it's too flashy, meaning it can be much too high or much too low. So we just can't get fish through an entire year. And I tell folks, well, have you been down to the Driftless? If you can drive two or three hours from where our office is located, you can get into some unbelievable fishing opportunities and again, back to that access portion, you have unparalleled access opportunities that are very well marked. You can pick up a, a guide on mndnr.gov that shows all the trout fishing opportunities. You can print out your maps. You can get down and very easily access and know what fish are available. And then it's just a matter of t- doing your job as the angler, right? You got to be able to read the water, um, whatever methodology you use, and, and put a bait in front of the fish. Or go fishing with a couple guys that know how to read the water and tell you <laughs> what to put in front of the fish. Um, buddy, you, and I have to, to let the listeners know, you really helped me out and get in on, on some fish using an indicator, which I hadn't used before. Um, Glorified bobber. Yeah, yeah, bobber. We'll call it whatever mm-hmm. we want. We were mm-hmm. even using uh, fly poles, if you want to say that, <laughs> if you want to be so bold. Well, so this is one of the things. <laughs> we, we have to be a little bit snooty when, when we're fly fishing. It's, it's not a bobber. It's a strike indicator. <laughs> Oh, yeah. we, it's sort of it's one of the things that my trout fishing buddies we uh, we we joke about that you have to refer to things a certain way and be be snooty and we have to use all natural materials. Of course, I'm using artificial foam hopper today. It's not a not a, not a, a synthetic versus a real um, mm-hmm. natural material, but yeah, it depends how how picky you want to get. But joking aside, yeah. So the indicator worked for you, Drew. It did, and and we had some. Uh, some tungsten beadhead uh, nymphs, which was great, um, you know, using that, that lead substitute uh, for, for, for weights to get it down there to, to the brown trout. Um, buddy, you do quite a bit of fishing. You're from South Dakota. Um, do you get over to Minnesota much to fish? Not a lot, really. Uh, I love fishing the Driftless. I've only fished it three or four times is all. Uh, I feel sad uh, saying that. But every time I've come over, it's been an amazing experience. And there are always different experiences. Every single body of water offers something unique, offers unique scenery, offers unbelievable scenery and serenity and, uh, and amazing fishing opportunities. Minnesota does such a great job managing their waters and, and creating that public access. 
it just makes it so easy for out-of-staters like me to pick up a guide, like Scott said, and, and be able to just say, oh, there's a creek right there. I'm going to go check that, check that easement out and see what it looks like. And there's a sign. There's easement begins here. You walk into the easement, you walk into the water, and you just start finding fish. And, yeah, sometimes you need to use a, a bobber and, a, and some weight because sometimes those fish are going to be stacked up in a hole, um, and they're not always looking up. I know a lot of people think of fly fishing, and they just think, you know, throwing a a beautiful Adams out there laying it out or a caddis fly and laying it out there perfectly and waiting for a big 18 inch brown trout to come and eat it. That's not always what's going to happen. You know, we put an Adams on yep. today because those trichos were out yep. and, and the fish just weren't looking up. And sometimes yep. that happens. Uh, and so when that happens, you, you put a bobber on, you put some weight on a nice tungsten bead. We had a, we were using a tongue teaser today because there were tons of caddis out there. And, uh, and then you just mess with the mess with the depth at every hole you get to and eventually you're going to figure it out if you if you play with things a little bit but depth anyone who wants to learn how to catch more fish with fly fishing depth is probably the number one place where people go wrong when they're when they're trying to catch fish they might not know what they're doing wrong start with depth you need to get down to the fish if they're on the bottom you need to put more weight on or you know let more leave more line between your bobber and your fly and, and that's what that's what that tungsten bead helps it do is is it gets down to the fish that are holding deep in the hole uh, quicker and better than you know like a brass head. You know, like the, the the pool that we found our fish in, it was running a little bit quicker. You need that tungsten bead to get down fast, otherwise it's going to go right over the heads of the fish. Um, they were fairly aggressive today, fortunately, because they were coming up and eating at mid column, but. Uh, but it worked out. It worked out perfect. Well, you know they're aggressive if even I can catch them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you did a great job. You, you but, shouldn't. You shouldn't uh, disc, discount your fishing abilities. So, so, buddy, you you hear stories though from from people, all, um, you know, all over, talking about fishing and fishing heritage and fishing culture, um, and, and you collect those through through fish stories. What what is fish stories? How how can people find that? What is what is what is the medium that, that you're using for that? Fish Stories is an online archive dedicated to preserving angler voices and their fishing stories. So I believe that we are all somehow connected to an angler, and in turn we're connected to those fishing stories. Uh, these stories can be fact, they can be fiction, but the common denominator of their success in captivating audiences all around the world is that angler's voice. And Every single day we're losing anglers close to us and along with that we're losing these awesome stories. We're losing wisdom and advice and uh, um, fishing techniques and cool stories. So uh, I, I believe that we need to, to record these voices um, and put them online for everyone to experience, for future generations to listen to. I think the future of, of hunting and fishing relies not only on us preserving these voices, but you know, spreading them and and, and uh, helping them stay alive for forever. But fish stories is at fishstories.org. It's a free online archive. You can you can record uh, stories of anglers that you care about, whether it be on your phone or with a, any other recording device. Smartphones take great audio, and then you can upload it to the archive for free. And uh, just put all the information in, you know, who it's about, put the special tags in. Maybe there's walleye mentioned or a specific lake or a specific town. Put all that information in. And then later, uh, you go back in and you can search through the archive for that specific information. You can share that story. You can download it uh, and uh, keep it around forever. And, and it's, it's hosted online on the Fish Stories archive. And, uh, and it might not, these stories might not be important to everyone, 
but even if they're important to one person, they might only be important to an angler themselves, just keeping that story, keeping their legacy alive for a long time. Uh, It's not going to be important to millions of people potentially, but it's important to one person that it's important enough to keep. And as a, as the curator of the archive, if, if you will, um, what, what have you learned from all these, all these various fish stories? What, what has been your takeaway so far listening to them? That's a really good question. The number one thing I've learned so far uh, doing this two and a half years, that anglers are extremely humble. And they will talk your ear off if there's a connection there, if there's a trust built up between, you know, if they see another angler, they're going to say, oh, hey, well, how's the fishing doing? Or, what are you catching? But if, if they're not, if, they're, if that trust isn't there and you, say, and you ask someone to share a story, they're going to say, I don't have any good stories to tell. Nine times out of ten, they're going to say, I, don't, I just don't have any good stories. And you say, oh, come on. And then once you build that, that trust up, then they'll start sharing stories and a lot of really cool stuff will come out. So I found that it's, anglers are extremely humble. They are, and it's extremely difficult to get them to share their stories. And that's why it takes a person with some, that trust factor to, to sit down and say, hey, grandpa, can I record, can I sit down and record with you a little bit and just talk about your life as an angler and how you got into it, your mentors, your favorite fishing buddies, your favorite fishing stories. And then and they'll be open to doing that. And I, I think they would enjoy it, actually. I don't think people ask. It's They don't ask those, you know, those anglers enough if we can ha- have those conversations. Or we don't ask people who their mentors were or who their favorite people to fish with are. Those are cool questions that will get great answers. But, um, but they're not just going to come out and, and start sharing them most of the time. So it really, you have to take the initiative to make that conversation happen. Well, and I really appreciate making uh, making a little fish story with, with you guys here today. Um, that that was pretty cool. And in the driftless country that we got up in, it's it's just picture perfect, pretty. I mean, we're going through as we cross the Mississippi River, leaving from Lacrosse into the Minnesota part of it. You know, we're going up into into farmland through hills on dirt roads, high bluffs, rolling meadows, greenery, and then these beautiful little streams that just trickle down and move and have uh, pretty tight cover in places. Um, what is unique about the driftless region that makes it so great for trout waters? Well, we talked a little bit about catching brown trout today, and they are a fish that were brought over here from Europe and introduced. Uh, rainbow trout are, are have also been introduced into this region. When you look at you, you basically look at a map and, you know, present time map, uh, aerial photography, you see these, these veins and this, this network that spreads out of hilltops, coolies, ridges, bluffs, like you described, Drew. And we, you're looking at this area where glaciation didn't occur. So it's not all pounded flat. Um, you don't have little, you know, carved out portions. The hills haven't been ground down and uh, that's really unique. And the other unique thing besides leaving those hills intact or the underlying geology. We've got a lot of limestone, uh, which, which is easily eroded by water, uh, introduces a lot of nutrients to the water and, and fuels a lot of primary productivity. So you get your, you get your insects going, you get your, uh, you get your plant life growing, you get uh, zooplankton, a little bit of everything. You just fire up your whole food chain and the, the productivity of these waters is, is really remarkable. 
And then I mentioned the browns, I mentioned the rainbows, and of course we've got these native brook trout. Uh, and they're they're holding on in some places. I know um, they're they're largely outcompeted by rainbows and browns, but actually some recent research uh, from some of the biologists in Minnesota have actually found that as we look at more climate change, some of these uh, native heritage brook trout are actually more resilient than we thought. And in some upper headwater portions of streams and extending into some of those downstream reaches or mid-reaches, uh, the brook trout are holding strong and even uh, out-competing some of those browns. So a little bit of, uh, of, of a glimmer of hope as we see things change with hydrology, precipitation, and climate. But, you know, the old saying that trout don't live in ugly places is, is true. We, <laughs> we saw this beautiful landscape today. We, we hiked around in it. We had a chance to see old fallen trees with moss and mushrooms. We saw, you know, birds flying around overhead. We saw um, critters running around back and forth. I've, I've seen a little bit of everything down here and just... To look and see that background, to have a beautiful day like we had today, it, it is about creating those fishing memories. And, you know, when when you said that, I actually just got up and I had to grab a book that was over in, in my luggage. We're actually recording this in, in the hotel room. Um, I have, <laughs> I brought with me a, my copy of Robert Traver's Trout Madness. Um, Robert Traver was a, uh, actually a Michigan Supreme Court justice um, whose real name was John D. Volkler. And uh, he was uh, the author of Anatomy of Murder, but he was an avid trout fisherman. And he wrote uh, this, this book, and it's a collection of fish stories. Some true, some not, some, uh, some sort of middling between the two. Um, but, but within that, he wrote The Testament of a Fisherman. And, and one of the lines that he says is that uh, he, loves, he loves to fish because he loves the environs where trout are found, or where, the environs where fish are found. Um, and I probably, you know, I didn't actually find the quote here, so I probably just murdered it, but <laughs> it, it gets at that same thing, right? Like trout don't live in ugly places and you know, what attracts, I think a lot of people, particularly me to trout fishing are the places where it's done. Um, I've been a pretty unsuccessful, terrible fly angler for trout for many, many years and I still do it. I still have fun doing it. Because places like we were today, these, these small little streams that you can wade up and try to read and try to get right, um, just seem to have this hook. And, and, you know, we were talking earlier today, buddy, about how um, it's even fun when we're not catching fish because the scenery is so pretty and the challenge of trying to read the water. Um, and then, of course, once we started catching fish... Um, I wondered why I thought it was fun not catching fish because <laughs> don't get me wrong. It's fun even if you don't catch fish, but it is so much more fun when you do. Um, and, and we got into some good ones today. Scott, though, you wanted to get up higher into the spot where the brookies were, um, where you thought that, that they were holding. Um, in, in a stretch of river uh, like we were in, um, what distinguishes where the brookies are going to be up there versus where we were into the browns? What, what's going to be that, that dividing line that one takes over? Well, so if we, if we cross the two species, right, and it occasionally happens, you get browns and brooks will, will spawn and you'll get tiger trout. But generally speaking, these are two fish that uh, they, they want to be separate from each other. They overlap, absolutely. I mean, we'll, the stream we were on today, you'll come up, and the higher up you'll go, you'll start off, if, you're wearing polarized lenses out there, 
it's a protective measure so you don't put a fly in your eye and uh, you know get poked by a singing nettle or lord knows what but beyond that it's being able to actually see into the water and the water's you know nice and clear we've got a running stream and it's small small enough order uh, at the where we're fishing it that you know, we can hop along and cross it pretty easily at riffles and pick our favorite locations and banks and continue moving up and as we move further and further upstream we're going to get into more and more pronounced brook trout water you're going to notice it i mean today we saw pools that held brown trout but at some point we were i've fished this stream before and you're going to get to a point where you're going to start to see those white flared markings on the on the pelvic and pectoral fins uh, <clears throat> and you're going to know that you are you're seeing starting to see those uh those brook trout and the further along you go then it, it, the higher and higher you go the smaller the stream gets the closer to the headwaters you are that's where you're getting into more pure true brook trout water and in you were on your way there today but you did not make it there <laughs> um what happened to you today man well you know as much as we try not to have these issues <laughs> occasionally you will have a, a gear malfunction a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> today, my uh, my my handy dandy pair of, of boots, which I have a hard time sourcing since I wear a size 16, my soles started to become unglued. Borrowed them from Shaq. So, yeah, so back, to, back back I went to the truck and managed to even uh, pass both of you guys by. But luckily, you figured out that the the gig was up and came back and found me. Well, eventually, because because Buddy and I were fishing together after after a while, and and we were trying to catch up to Scott, who we knew was further or we thought was further upstream, and we thought, well, you know, he was talking about getting into those brookies. I bet he just like double timed up there so we start double time up trying to catch up not realizing scott had already doubled back and passed us somehow so we didn't know he was back at the truck <laughs> but he, he took the path the easiest path considering his his footwear right issue. We right were, we were on the creek the entire time unless we went through my favorite bushwhacking uh partner was the the what is it called? Stinging, Stinging nettle. nettle. Oh my oh, god, man. that stuff is the worst. <laughs> so if you've never been, and that was my biggest surprise about the Driftless, I thought, oh, it's this beautiful area, but then you go down there, you have to bushwhack a little bit, and you come out and you're burning, your your arms are itching so bad, it's called stinging nettle, and you just have to leave it alone for five minutes, and it goes away. But you have to resist the urge. Everything's gonna itch and it's gonna feel like it's on fire. But you have to resist the urge. Well, and I was I was wet wading in shorts, so I was going through it and it was hitting my shins, uh, you know. And and I just couldn't wait to get back into the river and, the and worst, have those man. cooled down by by the water. Um, but yeah, it was Scott. Scott told us beforehand just to to let it be and it will be all right. Um, is is that um, is that a native plant or is that uh, invasive? It is a it is a native plant. Okay. I think there's a uh, there's a few life lessons for everybody today. I think <laughs> Drew, Drew talked about you know his his experiences using an indicator and you know I'm old enough to know better, but sometimes just in too big of a hurry to fish. And the life lesson here is make a plan. Say okay, we're gonna meet back at a certain time or you know in case. And this is what happens. This is real thick country, and we're leapfrogging each other, kind of pool hopping and heading upstream. The fish are always oriented. Uh, facing facing upstream and so that's that's the way you want to attack a stream and that's what we were doing today 
but yeah, you, you, you make a plan, especially when it's thick like that. But yeah, running in the plants, I mean, you know it's going to be good water when it's not accessed by a lot of people, which means you're putting your hands straight up, um, you're, you're reeling up your line every time you're hopping, so you're not snagging it on things, and you're, you're wading through a sea of stiff sunflower, stinging nettle, wood nettle. Um, there's jewelweed mixed in, which we talked about a little bit. It's a, is an antihistamine. You can take the leaves and and, and the flower petals and wipe it over spots that, that are irritating you. But yeah, if you do run into the wood nettle or the stinging nettle, just let it alone for five <laughs> minutes. Don't scratch it. You'll make it worse. It's like getting poked with little tiny hypodermic needles that'll actually kind of stay in your skin like, uh, um, like almost like fiberglass insulation shards where you mm. just, you don't want to itch them in there. You want them to fall out and leave them alone and, and it'll pass. And, and that's one of those things you mentioned, though, that that's part of what probably limits a, a beautiful stretch of water like that from getting overfished um, is it is public access through the easement. So anybody has the right to go um, and fish there, but it's it's not easy fishing. It's tight cover. Uh, we I lost a few flies. Uh, yeah, part of, as I was saying, part, part of what prevents that from getting overfished is that it is tough to fish um and it's pretty to fish there's lots of trout in there uh, we saw lots of browns and um there's a few pools where uh, i think buddy got one on the on the first cast and then it was just sick with trout that were so stirred up by that first one catching that not a single other one of them would touch a fly mm-hmm. um but you could see them just swimming around back and forth, darting back and forth. They're just in there. Um, but but it's it's part of that environs that that our trout are found. And I found that quote from from Robert Traver. So I do I do want to finish up with that quote because I think it it describes um, what we were doing what we were doing today. Let me be, as you're as you're pulling that up. Let me just add. I mean, that's <clears throat> that's kind of the beauty of it. You you described it succinctly, Drew. That um, yeah, you have to you have a little bit of a battle when you're working your way in there. But any able-bodied person is able to fish these streams. And as you get away from some of the population centers, get to more remote areas, and you start looking at these maps. Whether you're talking the Driftless in Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin. There's so much water and so much opportunity and everything's got trout in it for the most part that it does spread out the fishing pressure and it does provide a lot of untapped resources, opportunities. If you're willing to put the time in, you know, the whole world's your oyster. You got all kinds of places in the driftless and that's that's really the beauty. So if you're willing to work like all three of us were today to trudge through the nettles and you know take the bad angles and you know have snag in your back cast and do all that kind of stuff you will be rewarded and and what what he wrote i think hits that same concept on the head he says i fish mainly because i love the environs where trout are found the woods and further because i happen to dislike the environs where crowds of men are found large cities but if heaven forbid there were no trout and men were everywhere few I would still doubtless prowl the woods and streams because it is, it is there and only there that I really feel at home. Um, buddy, could you tell people again in case uh, they didn't catch it earlier where they can find fish stories? Yeah, fishstories.org. Uh, go online and uh, upload a story or become a true fan. Help keep the archive around for a long time. And, and Scott, you're a, you're a freelance outdoor writer. You're a professional uh, fish biologist. 
Uh, but where can people find uh, your articles? Sure, I would recommend folks uh, look me up on any of your favorite social media platforms at Instagram or Twitter uh, or uh, on Facebook, and we can provide those uh, those links later. All right, and we'll uh, we'll provide a link to some of those in the show notes as well. Um, as always, the uh, National Wildlife Federation Outdoors podcast is supported by Rep Your Water and their three percent for conservation commitment. And actually, we have a new. Uh, collaborative hat produced uh, by Rep Your Water. It says, Stop Asian Carp, Protect Your Waters. And what they're doing is with the sale of that hat, which I was actually wearing today while catching my fish, got some nice pictures of that I'm happy about, um, they're going to take the sale of that hat and donate 50% of it to the National Wildlife Federation for our work actually trying to stop Asian carp and, and advance the, the brand and road plan to block them from getting into the Great Lakes. So as I like to say, you know, every angler needs a hat. Some of them just keep the sun out of your eyes. This one actually helps stop Asian carp. And you can check that out at repyourwater.com. We'll provide a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, buddy, uh, Scott, thank you both for uh, joining the podcast. Thank you even more importantly for an awesome day of fishing. I really appreciate it. It was a good time. Thanks. Thank you.